Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. In the summer of 1984, Ryan White, a 12-year-old boy from Kokomo, Indiana, didn't feel well. He was used to illness. He'd been born with hemophilia A, an inherited disease that prevents the blood from clotting and results in excessive bleeding. But this illness was different. Ryan mostly just felt sluggish, but in September, he started experiencing diarrhea, stomach cramps, and night sweats so bad they soaked through his mattress. Things only got worse from there. By the time his 13th birthday came around in December, he couldn't stop coughing, and he developed a fever of nearly 103 degrees. Ryan's mom, Jeannie, rushed him to the local hospital, but the doctors weren't able to help. He was transferred to the Riley Hospital for Children at Indiana University. There, Ryan was diagnosed with pneumocystis pneumonia, or PCP. This was a formerly rare disease which usually strikes in conjunction with another illness. But over the last few years, PCP diagnosis had skyrocketed across America without much explanation. The doctors did know that hemophilia didn't lead to PCP, they had to find out what was making Ryan sick, and the results they discovered were sobering. After they confirmed the diagnosis, the doctors had to do the unthinkable, tell Jeannie that her 13-year-old son had AIDS. When our bodies fail, we trust doctors to diagnose the problem. But medicine isn't always an exact science. Sometimes it's a guessing game with life-or-death stakes. This is Medical Mysteries, a ParCast original. I'm Molly. And I'm Richard. Every Tuesday, we'll look at the strangest real-life medical cases in history and the experts who raced against the clock to solve them. As we follow these high-intensity stories, we'll explore medical research that might solve the puzzle. We'll analyze all the evidence and try to find an answer. 
You can find episodes of Medical Mysteries and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Medical Mysteries for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Medical Mysteries in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. This is our second and final episode on HIV and AIDS, an autoimmune disease that devastated the Western world in the 1980s. Although researchers have made great strides in stopping the spread of the disease, a recent UN analysis said more than one million people still get infected every year. There is still no FDA-approved cure for AIDS. Last week, we explored the epidemic's possible origins. We followed Dr. James W. Curran of the Center for Disease Control as he raced against the clock to identify the fatal virus in the early 1980s. This week, we'll follow Ryan White, who became famous when he was diagnosed at the height of the epidemic. Ryan's only hope for survival was for the U.S. government to give the AIDS crisis the attention it deserved, an action they'd put off for years. Ryan White, a young boy from Kokomo, Indiana, was a mystery from the beginning. He was born with hemophilia A, a disease that prevents blood from clotting properly. However, while hemophilia is typically an inherited disease, no one from Ryan's family had ever had it. And from the beginning, Ryan hated being different. He kept his diagnosis a secret from his friends and schoolmates. Sometimes he'd come to school severely bruised from his hemophilia and try to play it off as the result of an ordinary playground fall. Even though his hemophilia was a secret, the other kids knew he was hiding something. Ryan got used to being the subject of gossip, but he tried to always stay optimistic. He was religious and trusted that God would help him live with hemophilia. Everything was going to be okay. Around 1976, Ryan's doctors started him on regular at-home injections of a blood-clotting protein, Factor VIII. It ensured that the energetic and rambunctious kindergartner could play without worrying about excessively bleeding from minor bruises and scrapes. Factor VIII permitted Ryan to live a seemingly normal life, but it brought new risks. In his biography, Ryan White, My Own Story, he remembered an argument between his mother, Jeannie, and his grandfather in the early 1980s. Ryan's grandfather had recently read that AIDS was transmitted through the blood and feared Ryan's injections, which were derived from blood donations, could be contaminated. He pleaded with Jeannie to stop the treatments, but she was convinced that the Factor VIII injections were keeping Ryan alive. She refused to listen to Ryan's grandfather's fear-mongering, and Ryan kept taking the medication. Ryan wasn't concerned, though. An article he read in Time claimed that less than 1% of hemophiliacs had AIDS, and those who did contract the disease were usually older men. He didn't even think to worry about AIDS when he spent most of the summer of 1984 sick. That is, until he was finally admitted to the Riley Hospital for Children in Indianapolis. In December 1984, his grandfather's worst fear came true. 
13-year-old Ryan was diagnosed with pneumocystis pneumonia, a disease often found in people with weakened immune systems. In the 1980s, a PCP diagnosis was usually an indicator that the patient had contracted AIDS. It turns out that the statistics Ryan had read were wrong. In the 1980s, 90% of patients with severe hemophilia were infected with AIDS through tainted factor VIII. But to Jeannie, it seemed impossible that her young, boisterous son could have a deadly disease. She went into denial. When Ryan's teachers would come to visit him in the hospital, Jeannie would say, they say he has AIDS, but I think they're going to find out it's something else. His teachers often responded by becoming nervous or frightened. It was the first time Jeannie recognized the stigma associated with AIDS. Like his mother, Ryan's first instinct was to ignore the diagnosis. Not because he didn't believe it, but because he wanted just a few more weeks of normalcy. Even though he was only 13, Ryan already knew the harassment and discrimination he'd face if he was open about living with HIV. A lot of the mistreatment stemmed from early incorrect theories about the spread of AIDS, which were reported in the news as fact. In the mid-1980s, many people believed that HIV-positive people were all drug users or gay men, people who already faced discrimination in society. And some believed the opposite, that AIDS wasn't confined to certain groups, but easy to catch through physical touch, drinking from the same water fountain, or using the same toilet seat. Those people tried to limit what HIV-positive people could do or where they could go in the name of public safety. Ryan didn't want to face discrimination. He didn't want people to assume he was sexually active or a drug user. He insisted to his mother that he wasn't in denial. He knew he had AIDS. He just wanted to pretend for a little while that he didn't. But pretending wasn't an option because an AIDS diagnosis was a death sentence. In 1984, the AIDS mortality rate was over 75%, meaning three out of four people to receive a diagnosis died within the year. At that time, not only was there no sign of a cure, but also no treatment for AIDS. The reason AIDS is so deadly is that it targets the patient's immune system. HIV, the AIDS virus, attacks CD4 cells, also known as T-cells. They're a type of white blood cell that fights off infection. Not only does the loss of CD4 cells mean the infected person is at risk of other serious diseases like PCP, but HIV can take over CD4 cells and use them to produce more viruses. To control his PCP symptoms, Ryan returned to the Riley Hospital for Children at least once a month for gamma globulin therapy. Gamma globulin therapy is like a blood transfusion, but with antibody-rich blood plasma instead of whole blood. While gamma globulin can't cure AIDS or stop the spread of HIV, the boost in uninfected CD4 cells can help a person fight off infections short-term. Ryan also had to take nasal medication, an aerosol spray of pentamidine, the main drug that treated PCP. 
the spray and the gamma globulin helped him recover from pneumocystis pneumonia, but they did nothing to treat his HIV infection. At the time, there were no treatments that could. Ryan and his family just had to wait, hoping someone would find a cure while Ryan was still able to manage his symptoms. Unfortunately, time was short. Ryan's grandfather read that after diagnosis, AIDS patients usually only lived about six more months. Ryan's doctors agreed with the prognosis. That meant that when Ryan was 13 and most of his peers were thinking about first dances or math tests, he had to think about dying. Ryan's best hope was in the knowledge that AIDS was getting more news coverage every day. If he survived long enough, he might even survive to see a cure. In Ryan White, My Own Story, he said, I bet if I live five years, I can beat this thing, or I'll die trying. At the end of January 1985, 13-year-old Ryan was finally discharged from the hospital, but he couldn't go back to school right away. He hadn't fully recovered from the PCP. He still had a nasty cough and often felt too weak to really do anything, and he certainly didn't have an appetite. Ryan's frequent trips to the hospital for gamma globulin treatments meant his medical bills were piling up fast. His mother, Jeannie, worked at a factory in their hometown of Kokomo, and some of her co-workers collected money to help pay their bills. It was kind, but it wasn't nearly enough. Jeannie decided their best option was to sue the company that provided them with the tainted Factor 8 injections, but nothing came of it. At least at first, until Ryan and his family got a call from a local reporter about the lawsuit. It was soon printed in the paper that Ryan White of 3506 South Webster Street had AIDS. Suddenly, his personal nightmare was the topic of gossip. Ryan knew that AIDS was stigmatized because so many early patients were gay men. As a 13-year-old boy at a time when homophobia was rampant, Ryan was certain that bullying and harassment were soon to follow. Neighbors didn't want Ryan playing with their children. When he was at church, he was assigned to the very first pew or the very last, so everyone knew where he was sitting. On the upside, Ryan survived the summer of 1985, beating that initial six-month prognosis. He'd proven the doctors wrong by living this long, and he hoped to prove his neighbors wrong by acting like a normal kid when the school year started. But it seemed like he couldn't get away from discussions of HIV and AIDS, no matter what he did. It was all over the news when Rock Hudson, an A-list actor with an impressive film career, announced that he'd been diagnosed. He was the first major celebrity to come forward with a diagnosis, and over the next six months, AIDS coverage in major media outlets more than tripled. Rock Hudson's announcement of his AIDS diagnosis and of his homosexuality was a shock to many. But it humanized the disease, and for the first time, people were forced to deal with it head-on. There was even hope that the Reagan administration would push for more funding, since Rock Hudson and the president were friends. Unfortunately, even Hudson's diagnosis didn't lead to a presidential change of heart. 
It did, however, help raise funds so researchers could develop their first AIDS treatment. While Ryan prepared for seventh grade, 12 medical centers launched a massive clinical study on a possible AIDS treatment. Finally, the resources were in place, and the stakes couldn't be higher. A cure for AIDS wasn't just about saving people's lives, it was about saving the quality of their lives, allowing patients to live as normal people who could play with the other kids at school and sit wherever they liked at church. The scientists were hoping to stop the epidemic in its tracks. Instead, the first AIDS treatment proved highly controversial and only complicated the fight against the virus. Up next, a new drug hits the market, but it may not be as miraculous as it seems. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Rakuten. If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Samsung, Expedia, and Sephora. And even stack sales on top of cash back. It's easy to use, and you get your cash back through PayPal or check. The idea is simple. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Now, back to the story. In December 1984, 13-year-old Ryan White was diagnosed with AIDS. His outlook wasn't good. There was no treatment and no cure. Plus, the heavy stigma against the disease meant few people were looking for new breakthroughs. In the meantime, with no treatment in sight, Ryan was too sick to go to school. He'd missed so much of the previous school year, he already knew he'd have to repeat the seventh grade. By the summer of 1985, Ryan felt well enough to go back, but there was one thing standing in his way, his mother. She worried that the stress of sitting in the classroom, keeping up with homework or dealing with bullies would set back his recovery. For months, Ryan begged for two things, a dog and to return to school to see his friends. He desperately wanted to feel like an ordinary kid again. But even when his mother finally relented, it turned out that middle school bullies were the least of Ryan's worries. Petitions had surfaced from parents who didn't want him back in school. Some of those parents didn't even have a child in Ryan's grade. Nevertheless, school officials agreed with their complaints. Before the fall semester began, the district superintendent barred Ryan from attending classes in person. 
Ryan was devastated, and Jeannie sued the district. The court hearing wouldn't be resolved quickly, so the district tried to find a temporary compromise with Ryan's family. They agreed to give Ryan a tutor free of charge so he wouldn't fall behind in his work. That didn't actually happen. Every tutor made up some excuse so as not to come in contact with Ryan. One woman even said that her father, who was a doctor, told her to stay away. Ultimately, the school district settled on providing Ryan with a two-way phone hookup so he could call directly into his class. But this was a less-than-ideal solution. He couldn't see the blackboard, he couldn't follow along with any movies they watched, and if his teacher walked too far away from the phone, he couldn't hear what they were saying. Even if the phone had worked perfectly, Ryan would have been distracted by the reporters camped outside his house. His lawsuit, which was still ongoing, had become a national story. He became an icon, the boy with AIDS who was fighting to go to school. Given how much discrimination he'd faced, Ryan was astounded at how kind reporters were to him. Jeannie mused how the press had done a good job of handling a sensitive issue. And their reports reached sympathetic readers and viewers all over the United States. Ryan's mailbox was flooded with letters, posters, and gifts. The whites were shocked at this show of care and support. As unfair as it sounds, a lot of people believed that HIV-positive patients deserved to die of the disease. Homophobia was rampant, as was distrust of intravenous drug users. For much of the public, AIDS was easy to ignore because it only afflicted people who'd done something that society deemed wrong. Some even said it was God's punishment for sinners. According to Gallup polls, about half of Americans believed this erroneous fact by 1985. Ryan was different. He was just an innocent kid. He'd been infected while trying to treat his hemophilia. For the first time, public opinion toward the epidemic turned toward sympathy. But Ryan didn't want to be the face of AIDS. He wanted more than anything to be seen as a normal kid. He didn't want news coverage or gifts from strangers, and he didn't want to be looked down upon. He frequently said that if he could give up his fame just to be healthy, he would. Ironically, it was that very fame that could help save his life. Ryan put a face on the disease that government officials seemed all too happy to ignore. And soon, that face was everywhere. In the fall of 1984, President Reagan still hadn't publicly acknowledged the AIDS epidemic. In fact, he wouldn't until a year later, well into his second term. By then, there'd been nearly 6,000 AIDS-related deaths in the United States alone, and the president couldn't delay any longer. It had gotten to the point where he had to say or do something, anything, in regards to the ongoing crisis. When he finally did address the epidemic, President Reagan defended his administration against critiques that they hadn't done enough. In September 1985, a top researcher told him there wasn't enough budget to attack the problem. Reagan replied, I think with our budgetary restraints and all, it seems to me that $126 million in a single year for research 
has got to be something of a vital contribution. But speeches before Congress backed up the researchers' assertion that $126 million was not enough. Actress and AIDS activist Elizabeth Taylor testified before the U.S. Senate Committee. She called their response to the crisis a national scandal, a scandal of neglect, indifference, and abandonment. There still wasn't a cure or even a treatment to halt the spread of the virus. Thousands of lives were at stake. For some HIV-positive people, it was already too late. Rock Hudson died on October 2, 1985. That day, the government finally allocated $190 million, nearly $70 million more than had been requested to expand AIDS research. In addition to these public funds, Hudson himself left $250,000 to AMFAR, the American Foundation for AIDS Research. While activists raised awareness in Washington, D.C., Ryan fought the law in Kokomo. His court case was long and exhausting, but he was finally allowed to return to school on February 21, 1986. It had been almost a year and a half since he'd been in a classroom and nearly just as long since his diagnosis. It seemed like a miracle that Ryan was still alive and able to go to school, but it didn't last long. On his first day back, three parents in the district filed an injunction to prevent Ryan from returning. It took almost two months for a judge to throw out the injunctions. Eventually, 14-year-old Ryan was allowed to attend Western Middle School again. But he could never go back to being an anonymous, ordinary boy. Instead, Ryan was becoming a hero to AIDS patients everywhere, serving as a sympathetic face of the disease and helping fundraisers tug on heartstrings. He was invited to the Amfar Benefit Party in New York City, a star-studded event where he'd be surrounded by his favorite celebrities. The morning of the soiree, he told Good Morning America that he was most looking forward to seeing Elton John. When Ryan and his family arrived at the benefit, they were welcomed with open arms. Elton John wasn't there, but Ryan still managed to have a great time. It was a nice change of pace for the boy who couldn't catch a break back home. The next morning, Amfar sent them a limo to bring them to the airport. They were cutting through New York's traffic when suddenly the car phone started to ring. When they answered, they were surprised to hear a man with a British accent on the other end of the line. It was Elton John. He'd seen Ryan on Good Morning America. Elton apologized for missing the Amphor event and instead invited Ryan and his family to his next concert in Texas. Obviously, Ryan was thrilled. Sadly, he never made it to the show. He had to be hospitalized due to a persistent cough. This was becoming something of a routine for Ryan. He spent so much time in the hospital, he became friends with the doctors and staff. But soon, they gave him good news. On March 20th, 1987, the FDA approved the first anti-HIV drug in the United States. Azitothymidine, or AZT, 
like the gamma globulin treatment, couldn't cure HIV or AIDS, but it could stop the virus's spread. AZT was discovered almost by accident. A scientist developed it in the 1960s to fight cancer, but it never made it past animal trials because it was ineffective. In the 1980s, researchers found that AZT could block the enzyme HIV uses to take over a cell. It couldn't kill the HIV, but it could severely limit the virus's ability to spread and take over the body, at least in theory. The approval of AZT was controversial. From start to finish, clinical trials only took 20 months, when a test of that size would usually last up to 10 years. But the FDA was under immense pressure to speed up the process. That pressure was in part thanks to people like Ryan White. His face was splashed across front pages, reminding people of the human cost of untreated AIDS. People's lives depended on finding a cure fast. During the brief trial, 300 participants diagnosed with AIDS were randomly assigned a prescription, a placebo pill or AZT. The participants didn't know which pill they were getting, and neither did their doctors. And just four months into the human trial phase, researchers ended the test. During those four months, one person taking AZT had died. In contrast, 19 placebo patients had passed away. The FDA claimed this was enough evidence to prove the drug was safe and effective. Why carry on the trial when people were dying and this drug could help them? The problem was, the trial wasn't as scientific as researchers hoped. They measured results in terms of how many patients survived, while ignoring the fact that AIDS isn't an inherently fatal illness. AIDS is deadly because it weakens the immune system. It's other opportunistic infections that technically kill the patient. And when study participants got sick with pneumonia or diarrhea, there was no standardized procedure for how to treat them. So if doctors gave life-saving care to a sick AIDS patient during the clinical trial, AZT got the credit rather than the treatment that actually helped. In addition, rumors suggested that some study participants shared pills with one another to increase the odds that a placebo patient could try the life-saving drug. If these rumors were true, researchers had no way of knowing which patients were actually on AZT and which weren't. Those 19 deaths in the control group may have been people who were taking the test drug. Finally, AZT had serious side effects, including nausea, vomiting, and liver problems. There were a lot of drawbacks, but even with all of these concerns, Doctors thought that a flawed AIDS treatment was better than no treatment at all. So the barely tested drug hit the market. Soon after, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services launched the AZT Drug Reimbursement Program. This initiative assisted people who couldn't afford the medicine on their own, even with insurance. Ryan didn't know about the flaws in the AZT drug trial. When he heard about the treatment, he just saw hope for a cure. He had a hard time getting on AZT because of his history of hepatitis, which could cause liver problems. 
Ultimately, his doctors decided the risk of liver damage was less than the risk of living with untreated AIDS. So he finally got the treatment he needed. By this point, he'd been living with AIDS for a year and a half, about 10 months longer than he'd expected to. With AZT treatments, it seemed he just might beat the condition. But he couldn't beat the stigma against AIDS. Though Ryan got healthy enough to return to school and finish eighth grade, he did so amidst bullying, harassment, and discrimination. Strangely, he felt most accepted among strangers and celebrities. Ryan and his family finally met Elton John in Los Angeles. The star even threw a little party for Ryan at Disneyland. They took private jets to various concerts and received handwritten notes and roses after they returned home. Much to Jeannie's surprise, Elton and Ryan shared drinks and handshakes and hugs. To Elton, Ryan wasn't the boy with AIDS. He was just Ryan. Sadly, Ryan was starved for this kind of acceptance and dignity. Even though the CDC had debunked the myth that AIDS could be transferred from casual contact, students and teachers didn't want to shake Ryan's hand or use the same bathroom as him. He was the punchline to the homophobic jokes that his classmates made. People claimed that he coughed on food in the grocery store and spit on people who made him mad. Classmates defaced his locker and wrote slurs on his folders. Everything came to a head the day the Whites came home from a family outing to find broken glass on the living room floor. Further investigation revealed a circular hole in the window. Someone had fired a gun at the house. Enough was enough. In 1987, Ryan and his family knew it was time to leave Kokomo, even though it would be hard to abandon the little town where his mom had grown up and where his grandparents still lived. But there was no better time to leave. The Landsberg Company was interested in making a television movie about what had happened to Ryan in Kokomo. His family received an advance almost large enough for a down payment on a house one hour south in Cicero, Indiana. And Ryan's new friend, Elton John, provided the rest of the money. Things were looking up. Ryan would live in a new house, attend a new school, and navigate a new culture, one that was no longer afraid to talk about AIDS. In May 1987, President Reagan made his first public speech about AIDS at an AMFAR awards dinner. He announced that the government was funding more AIDS research than ever before. In the upcoming year, they'd spend a total of nearly $766 million, a pretty big turnaround from the initial $2 million. Less than a month later, he signed an executive order creating the first presidential commission on AIDS. The advisory committee would investigate the cause and spread of HIV. This information might finally give researchers the clues they needed to treat or cure AIDS, or at the very least, to stop new people from getting infected. Finally, Ryan had real hope. On top of that, his new semester promised to be different. His classmates and school officials underwent an extensive AIDS education program before the fall semester began. Ryan's new school, Hamilton Heights High School, 
contacted the State Department and requested that experts visit and answer any questions current students may have. The program prepared everyone for Ryan's arrival. He had a place he could be himself and be normal, but the national spotlight would continue to follow him. Ryan addressed the President of the United States in a speech for the President's Commission on AIDS. He detailed the harassment he'd endured while going to school in Kokomo and how life in Cicero was drastically different. His struggles were amplified further on January 16, 1989, when the Ryan White story aired on national television. He was more famous than ever before, but the movie didn't change much for Ryan. His old neighbors and classmates in Kokomo felt the movie portrayed them in a bad light. So, for the most part, their opinions of him didn't change. However, their opinions were now the least of Ryan's concerns. In the three years since his diagnosis, it had seemed like he was always sick or recovering from illness. It usually worsened when the weather changed. Summer did wonders for Ryan's disease, but when autumn hit, he felt so tired he couldn't move. He never could escape a flu or cold season unscathed. Ryan turned 18 in December 1989, when the number of AIDS cases in the United States reached nearly 100,000. He'd survived five years since he'd been diagnosed, but every day was still a battle. He'd been sick since September, in and out of school, too tired and weak to even carry his books from one class to the next. As bad as he felt, he didn't want to see a physician. Between hemophilia and AIDS, he'd spent most of his childhood in and out of hospitals and doctor appointments. They were almost as exhausting as the illnesses he faced. So Ryan insisted that he tried to push through his symptoms. Things were so bad, he almost canceled a trip to attend the Oscars in Los Angeles. Thankfully, he rallied in February 1990 and flew to California soon afterward. At a pre-Oscars event for disadvantaged youth, Ryan finally met former President Ronald and Nancy Reagan in person. Although the Reagans had never met Ryan before, even they could tell he was sick. Nancy pulled Jeannie aside and asked, He's not doing well, is he? I can tell. Two and a half hours after the meeting, Ryan asked his mom to fly him back home to the Riley Hospital for children. She knew that was a bad sign. So she hurried him to the airport and quickly booked a flight back home. Once they touched down in Indiana, they headed straight to the hospital. Ryan was checked in and saw his regular doctor, Dr. Martin Kleiman. Jeannie hoped that the medics would get Ryan back on his feet again like they always did. But three days later, Ryan hadn't gotten any better. Dr. Kleiman told Jeannie that they had to put him in a medically induced coma. It was the only way to save Ryan's life. Up next, doctors at the Riley Hospital for Children scrambled to save Ryan. Now back to the story. In March 1990, 18-year-old Ryan White was rushed home from the Academy Awards. He'd suffered from AIDS for five years, but somehow these past few weeks in Los Angeles had felt worse. Back in Indianapolis, he was admitted to the Riley Hospital for Children. 
After three days of treatment, Ryan was struggling just to breathe, so he was moved to the intensive care unit and put on a ventilator. It didn't help, so he was put in a medically induced coma to slow the viruses attacking his body. His doctor told Jeannie that the likelihood of pulling through was less than 10%, and that was an optimistic number. However, they'd learned to stay positive with someone like Ryan, who'd lived five years longer than his initial prognosis. Unfortunately, this time their optimism was misplaced. Ryan died on April 8, 1990, at 18 years old. He was surrounded by his mother, sister, grandparents, and even his most famous cheerleader, Elton John, who'd flown to Indianapolis just to be there. Ryan had passed away one month shy of graduating high school. A few months later, Congress passed his namesake legislation, the Ryan White Comprehensive AIDS Resources Emergency Act, or CARE Act, in August 1990. The CARE Act was a bipartisan measure signed into law by President George H.W. Bush. It provided $220.5 million in federal funds for care and treatment, including grants to help low-income people afford expensive AIDS medicine. Managed by the U.S. Department of Health Resources and Service Administration, the first grants under the CARE Act were distributed just a short time later in 1991. 1991 also saw, finally, another drug that could treat HIV and AIDS, didanosine, an oral solution of powder and water. When a person's cells absorb didanosine, it slowed down the HIV's ability to replicate and spread through the body. Unfortunately, didanosine couldn't cure AIDS, and it had dangerous side effects, including potential neural damage. However, it was very effective at slowing the progression of AIDS in patients who'd previously used AZT. If he'd lived long enough to see it hit the market, Ryan White might have responded to didanosine very well. And thanks to people like Ryan, who helped destigmatize AIDS, researchers were able to raise funds and keep looking for better cures. Their efforts led the FDA to approve the use of highly active antiretroviral therapy, HEART, in 1996. HEART referred to any treatment regimen that involved two or more prescription medications. For example, researchers found that didanosine could be more effective when used in combination with AZT. Each form of heart is customized to an individual's specific needs. It works best when patients can have honest conversations with their doctors about what is and isn't working, conversations free of judgment or shame. While heart can't cure AIDS, heart can help people manage their symptoms and it will slow the progression of HIV and related conditions. After five years, the CARE Act was reauthorized in 1996, including several additions to make the initiative more accessible. Part of the legislation introduced funding for the newly approved heart treatment. The following year, the Health Resources and Service Administration created the HIV AIDS Bureau, responsible solely for overseeing and administering funds 
in relation to the Ryan White HIV-AIDS program. In 2000, the CARE Act was reauthorized again, this time with new provisions for enhancing the health outcomes of patients with HIV and AIDS. And in 2006, it was renamed the Ryan White HIV-AIDS Treatment Modernization Act of 2006. Up until this point, most AIDS breakthroughs had been about managing the disease and slowing its progress. But then something remarkable happened, something that had never happened before. Timothy Ray Brown was cured of AIDS. He didn't go public until 2010. Until then, he was simply known as the Berlin patient. Brown tested positive for HIV in 1995. On February 6, 2007, he underwent a stem cell transplant to treat his leukemia. Within three months, HIV couldn't be detected in his blood. Stem cell transplants are highly controversial and incredibly expensive, but another possible solution appeared in 2019. That year, Nature reported on an HIV patient in London who received a bone marrow transplant. He currently has no detectable HIV in his blood. While the procedure is too expensive and risky for widespread use, researchers view the London patient and the Berlin patient as proof that HIV can be cured. Meanwhile, other strides are being made to prevent its spread. In the past decade, the FDA approved a more accessible drug that would prevent HIV transmission through sex and drug use. PrEP, or pre-exposure prophylaxis, is a highly effective medication for HIV-negative individuals who are at risk of contracting the disease. Thanks to PrEP, scientists today have the tools to halt AIDS in its path. But they still have to work around a lot of social stigma. Nearly 40 million people live with the disease worldwide. One in seven are unaware that they're infected and may inadvertently spread it if they're too embarrassed or afraid to get tested. Information campaigns have helped a little, as have efforts to fix the mistakes of the past, including the demonization of Gaetan Dugas, or Patient O. As we discussed last week, Dugas was identified in the early days of the AIDS epidemic. He was dubbed Patient Zero by Randy Schiltz, author of And the Band Played On. The 1987 book and the 1993 movie adaptation on HBO depicted Dugas as simply a bad guy. Somehow he got infected with the virus, and then he continued to sleep around and spread the disease. It took more than 30 years, but Gaetan Dugas' name was finally cleared in a study published in Nature in 2016. It described a new genetic analysis of stored blood samples from Dugas. It proved that Dugas' specific strain of HIV was prevalent in the country long before he began globetrotting with Air Canada in 1974. In other words, he wasn't responsible for the spread of AIDS. Since Dugas' name was cleared, scientists have continued to search for solutions and for ways to right the wrongs of the past. Nobody can bring back those individuals who died when AIDS was so hated that officials refused to cooperate to find a cure. But there's still time to build a better future.
new breakthroughs are promising, but only so long as doctors, patients, researchers, and the federal government are willing to work together. The history of AIDS and HIV is one of stigma, government irresponsibility, and unnecessary deaths. With better education and open communication, the future can be one of hope. Thanks for listening to Medical Mysteries. We'll be back next week with another episode. For more information on Ryan White, amongst the many sources we used, we found the biography, Ryan White, My Own Story, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Medical Mysteries and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Medical Mysteries for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Medical Mysteries on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Medical Mysteries in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Medical Mysteries was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Juan Borda, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Freddie Beckley, and Joel Stein. This episode of Medical Mysteries was written by Jenna Lennon, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire, and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. <laughs>